All right. We are in a series on the book of John. We're in John chapter 9. And uh, what I want to talk about today, and I struggled over this title. I don't even know if I like it even now. But it's called, I called it The Ugliness of Religion. You're going to see religion exhibited in the lives of people and what it does to people when they put all their hope in just some sort of being religious thing. Just to review, the first part of John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And he dealt with some significant issues. Why is there suffering in this world? What is the point of suffering? Why does it happen to me? Why do good people suffer? Why do bad people seem to prosper? And so there's the, he has this healing. He heals this man. This man comes back. And if you remember, people were not sure. Even his neighbors were like, is this him? He looked so different. Like he's walking without help. And he's, you know, he's excited and he's happy. And, and uh, so they're not sure. They're going back and forth. And so the first thing they ask him is they say, well, where is this guy who heals you? What does he look like? Doesn't that seem like a particularly cruel thing to ask a person who is blind? You think, he's like, uh, well, guys, you see, the point is, uh, I was blind. So I don't know what he looks like. And I don't know where he is. So they, they keep asking these questions. And what are we going to see here today? What we're going to see is there is a value system in this world. It is worldly, and it is dressed up as religion, and the foundation of it is pride, and we're going to see how it plays out in this passage, and you're going to see something that I think is just amazing when you think about it, the joy of healing, the joy of a man receiving his sight gets totally overwhelmed by pride and anger. And so I'm going to do this a little differently. I didn't outline this passage per se. We're just going to go through the passage and work our way through it and then give somewhat of a conclusion at the end. So instead of reading the whole thing, we're going to take it in chunks. And here's the first chunk. In verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now, let me just stop there. You just had this incredible healing. You're so excited and overjoyed. This is a turning point. I mean, this is the turning I mean, this is incredible what has happened to you. You can see. I mean, it's hard for us to even imagine it. You can see. So who do they take him to? The Pharisees. Ugh. I mean, it's just like, it's a, like a cruel joke in and of itself. They brought, the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. That's the absolute worst people they could have taken to. Now, the day on which Jesus had, been, had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see, right? As we read this too, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think, John, there's some irony in here. There's a little bit of humor in here. There's some sadness in here. But there's also some humor because they're asking this guy, he was blind. He's like, I, all I know was suddenly there was mud on my eyes, and somebody told me, go wash your eyes. I went and washed my eyes, and now I can see. That's it. That's all I know. But we already see something that we know is a problem for the Pharisees. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, when he healed them on the Sabbath, he healed them on the Jesus knew what he was doing. I mean, I want to I make sure we understand this. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he healed this man on the Sabbath, and he knew it would cause a problem. But see, here's the point. He's trying to get them, especially the Pharisees, he's trying to get them to see how wrong and hurtful their laws were, their religious laws were but they just keep getting angry. I think seven times, seven times in the Gospels, it specifically mentions that Jesus heals 
on the Sabbath. He's trolling them. That's what he's doing to the Pharisees. Trying to, he's kind of provoking them. And I, I, you know, we talk about this. I talk about trying to get into people's shoes. I always imagine Peter in this situation, right? Because I can imagine Peter is kind of conflicted here. He's going, Jesus, what's wrong with Tuesdays? What's wrong with Tuesdays? Right, John? I mean, Tuesdays are just as good. Why do you have to make everyone angry? Not everyone angry. Why do you have to make the most important people in Israel, the most religious people in Israel, you're making them angry? Thursdays are wide open on my schedule, Jesus. I'm good with Thursdays. But, man, when you do it on a Sabbath, they get all ticked off, and they get mad, and they talk about killing people and killing you. There's a better way. I can just imagine Peter going for the better way, the easy way, the not-so-provoking way, you know? And then Jesus does another healing on the Sabbath, and Peter goes, ruh-roh, you know, and just this, here we go, here we go. But Jesus is trying to reach the Pharisees. He's pushing them. He's making them see how wrong he's trying to make them see how wrong they are. Because what has happened? They have taken God's law, and they have compounded it. They have, they have built on it with their own laws, what they think is a good application of it. Let's take the law. God's law is don't work on the Sabbath. That's what God said. Take a day of rest. Pretty simple. So they take it, and they come up with crazy ideas, like there's no kneading of bread on the Sabbath. You can't even knead because that's work. And those crazy ideas, those little things, can become things where people scratch their head and go, I don't understand at all. Because you can't carry a cloak on the Sabbath, but you can wear a cloak on the Sabbath. Because carrying is work. Wearing is essential. And then they say the big things, like no healing on the Sabbath. The only time you could heal on the Sabbath was if the life was in danger. Then you were allowed to give medicine or help or try to get them to someone who could help them if someone was going to die. But this blind man was not going to die, and that's how they looked at it. He's not going to die. You could have waited. And Jesus is saying, this is crazy because what happens? This is what religion does. Religion elevates our ideas and equates them with the law of God, with a command of God. We elevate our ideas till they become like, like sacred. And we have, we have a long history of doing that. And so the key is Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to them, and they're worried about it. They can see that their power, their position, their authority, their money, all these things are threatened by Jesus. You know, it's interesting, uh, in this day and age, you know, a lot of the reading I do with blogs and, and, and in some um, literature and stuff like that, people are worried about, you, you hear this a lot, oh, what is happening to the church? What is happening to the church? Can I tell you something? Like, the church is threatened. The church is not threatened. The church in the U.S. may be feeling like, in some ways, we're threatened, but we are not. It's not threatened because the church is God's plan, and the church is going to carry on just fine without us. He doesn't need us. It's just—it's been interesting lately uh, um, in, in a few things and just things that have been going on in my life. It, it, God clearly speaking to me and saying, "Bob, I don't need you. 
you're not that important. Just keep that in mind. And that's a good thing for me to keep in mind. Remember last week we talked, we talked about we are all beggars. We are all just like this man. We're beggars. And he doesn't have to have us. And so we get worried when we think the church is being threatened. And I know I've talked about this before, but to me this is a perfect example. In 1949, they estimated there were one million Christians in China. And in 1949, the communist Chinese kicked all missionaries out of China. All foreigners had to leave and left one million out of over a billion, a tiny segment. In 1988 or 89, a group of missionary, missionary leaders did a kind of a survey as best they could of the nation of China, and they estimated there were between 80 and 100 million Christians in China. In 40 years, the greatest revival known to man, in 40 years, in 40 years of no missionaries, in 40 years where continually in their schools, every single child was taught there is no God, there is no supernatural, this is all baloney. They had three, essentially, two to three generations to teach them this, we're all atheists, there is no God. And what happened? The church exploded. And here's what happened. The church exploded without our help. Because it's God's church, not our church. And reading not too long ago, a couple of missiologists, people who study missions, some of the explosive growth in the church now is happening in Iran, where it's the death penalty if you convert someone to becoming a Christian. And people are getting converted like crazy because it's God's church. And see, this is what the Pharisees have lost sight of. They think we're the keepers of the religion. We're the keepers of the truth. We're the ones in charge. It stands or falls with us. We're so important. And Jesus is a threat to them. He's a total threat to them. And then, so they start questioning this man. They do not want to believe that he has been healed. And notice his reply. He just says, this is what's happened. This happened. You know, that's good for us to remember sometimes. When people say, ask us about our walk with Christ, about why we believe, sometimes it's good to say, well, let me tell you what happened. Real shortly, real succinctly, let me just tell you, this is what happened. And that's what he does. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, talking about Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. See, So now they're they're arguing amongst themselves. There's some division. Pride causes division. It always does. But I think maybe what's happening is, at least for some of them, what Jesus is trying to say by doing these things, they're going, man, I don't know. Maybe somebody like Nicodemus, you know, somebody like that that's willing to listen and think. And so they turn to this guy. I love this. It's like they turn, they're angry. They're They're irritated and they're frustrated and they're mad. So they turn to him, you know, like it's his fault. Why did you do this to us by getting healed? So they turned to him and said, what do you, 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 
He opened your eyes. Tell us. What do you say he is? And so he says, um, I guess he's a prophet. I mean, you know, I mean, what is he doing? What is he going to do? You're like, uh, well, I think it was a good thing, right? I was blind. Now I see. Seems like a positive in my life, right? And uh, from my point of view, no pun intended, from my point of view, it's a really good thing. I mean, he has to be special. And so he goes for special. He says, I think he's a prophet. But, you know, he's thinking, I don't know. I haven't met the guy. I heard his voice. I felt mud. I can see. It's pretty simple, right? So verse 18, they still did not believe he, he had been blind and that he had received his sight until they sent for his parent, until they sent for his parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say? <laughs> I love that. You say was born blind. Like how how do you know? You lived with him for 40 years. You say he was born blind. How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. They're saying, look, this is what we know. They're essentially, they're, they're looking at the man and they're saying, you're a liar. We don't believe it. We don't believe you were healed. They're against healing, right? Who's against healing? Not me. I mean, it's way better than deductibles and copays, right? Healing is a good thing. It's a good thing. And they find themselves on the negative side. It's an amazing thing. I, you just wonder every once in a while if one of them stopped and said, what are we arguing for? Because we're arguing against healing. And then you feel these parents, they're walking into a minefield, and they know it. There is, what a crazy situation. There's no joy here. You, you think about it. People should be coming up and saying, this is great for you too. Your son can see. That's so exciting. And they'd be like, yes, it is great. You know, he can get a job and whatever. Your son is blind and now he sees. Congratulations. Everybody should be happy about this. And it isn't turning into something that is devastating for them. And they are giving as little information as possible. Their world has been turned upside down and somehow everyone around them is mad. How did it get to this? And so you see this. Now, we're going to see why. Because at first, your first thought is, whoa, they're being rough on their own son. They're not helping. And he continues. Verse 21, they say, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes? We don't know. We weren't there. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this, because at first you say, wow, they're kind of throwing him under the bus. But look at what's happening. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. All right? So they're not, they, I mean, in a sense, they kind of are throwing him under the bus, but what, what's happening is they are all of a sudden staring in the face of an incredibly, incredibly frightening concept for a Jewish person to be thrown out. It's a terrible thing in that culture because everything flowed through the synagogue. Your standing in the community flowed through the synagogue. In times of trouble, help flowed through the synagogue. You would be shunned by people. You, they would be told not to associate with you. They would say, don't buy from them and don't sell to them. And on and on. They can see their life as they know it, ending. Right there, right here, right now, they could see that happening. 
I have two brothers. They were missionaries. And the country they were missionaries in, they led a man to the Lord. One of them led a man to the Lord. He was a grocer. He owned a grocery store. And, and uh, he, he became a Christian, and he got excited, and he was trying to think about ways he could help his community as a grocer, how he could help the poor. Um, he got baptized, and, the, and the, uh, the, the Sunday after he got baptized, a, a, the local religious leader there said, if anyone buys from that man's grocery store, they'll be put out of the church. They'll be put out if anyone buys from him. And he went out of business. He lost his business. This is what they're facing. It's, it's, it's a traumatic thing. It's an incredible thing. And so what they're saying is he's an adult. He can speak for himself. We don't want to be responsible for ruining our lives. Can you imagine how they felt at that moment? I mean, it hasn't been very long, just a few, just not long. They found out their son can see. He walked up to him. They hugged their son. They, he saw them for the first time. He saw his mom. He saw his dad for the first time. And they saw that, and they experienced that, and they hugged him, and they cried together, and they laughed together, and they praised God together. And now, just not very long afterwards, they're being told, you, we will destroy you for this. We will destroy your life. And they thought, how did it get from this, our son can see, to this, we're going to be destitute. We're going to be beggars like he was. Religion will rip families apart in the name of God. That's what religion can do. It's a terrible thing. Verse 24. The second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. See, evidently, they sent him out while they talked to the parents. They said, one of them is going to trip up. We're going to catch him in a lie, right? So they summoned him back in. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. Think of what is underneath that statement. We know this man, talking of Jesus, we know he's a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I know one thing. I was blind. And now I see. You talk about keeping it simple right there. The intensity is rising here. The emotions are going off the chart. They're saying to him, what you're doing is criminal. Stop lying. Stop lying. We have ways. We will punish you. We will punish your family. Just tell us that you weren't healed, that you weren't born blind. Just tell us that. God knows you're lying. And basically, they're saying, stop covering for this sinful man, Jesus. And all he says is, look, here's what I know. This is what I know. Not see, can see. Big difference. This is all I know. A number of years ago, I was talking to somebody, and they were... Um, challenging me about the Bible. They were saying it's out of date, it's out of step, it's unfair, it's unjust, it's on the wrong side of history. It's not true. There's plenty of, there's plenty of, uh, of mistakes and contradictions in the Bible and blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, listen, you're telling me a lot of things and there's a lot of, I think, I think there's answers to those things that you're saying that I, I can do, but you're, you're just hammering me with all this stuff. But I know one thing, I said. I know one thing. I said, this book, this Bible changed 
my life. It changed my life radically. I know how I was before I became a Christian. I know the kind of person I was. I know how my heart was. And it changed me. And it started with my heart. And it worked out into my life and the way I lived with people. I'm not perfect. My wife and my daughter is here. You can ask them afterwards. They will give you hundreds of examples of me not being perfect, I'm sure. But he changed my life. And I can't get around that. I can't ignore it. I can't say it didn't happen because I'm not the person I was. And this is what this man does. He says, look, this is what I know. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his, one of his disciples too? Do you sense this man's running out of patience? <laughs> They've already said, if you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you'll be thrown out of the synagogue. And he goes, oh, do you guys want to be disciples? Is that what's going on here? And they're like, you know, they're like, oh, right, right? And so what happens when, when pride is your foundation and you're being confronted with things that relate to your pride? You attack. Look at this passage. Then they hurled insults at him. And they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. You know, can you imagine them? They're like this. We're disciples of Moses. Yeah, brother, high five. Yeah, baby, Moses, man. And Jesus is like, I remember when Moses was a baby, right? We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from, right? And they ask him again. They're probably trying to, you know, they're trying to catch him in an inconsistency. Maybe he'll say a different, you know, maybe this time he'll say clay. And they say, oh, you said mud before, you liar. You know, that, that type of a thing. They don't believe he was blind. You think about that. They don't believe him. They don't believe his parents. They don't believe the neighbors. And now this poor guy, I mean, he's had it with them, right? Even if they throw him out of the synagogue, he's ready to get in their face. He's like, oh, it's about to go down, right? He's, this is it. This is what happens with prideful people when they're confronted with their pride and their sinfulness. They go on the attack. And when you see this, you realize, you see this passage here, this part here, you realize they're at their wit's ends. They don't have anything substantive to say. They don't have anything substantial to say. They don't have an argument now. So now it's name-calling. Now, it's, now it is, they're going to they're gonna try to destroy his character. And they're going to destroy his character by destroying Jesus' character. When they say, we don't even know where he comes from. Okay, this is not a geographical question. They, they're not going, uh, what city was he from? Uh, no, they're saying, what's his lineage? We don't know. We don't know. This is something they used multiple times. They said, we know, the, we know where he's from. We're just not sure of the circumstances of his birth. We think he's a mamza. We think he's a bastard child. We don't know what happened there. 
All we know is Mary gave birth way too soon, and no one knows who the father is. That's what we don't know about this man. So what is it? It's an attack on Jesus. It's an attack on his character. They attack this man too. They tell him, you're a disciple of his. Can you imagine? What an incredible insult. I'd be like, insult me with that all day long. You're a disciple of Jesus. Thank you. Ow. Right? It, it, it's like, yes. Yes. And then, and, and here's the thing too. This man understands, I really believe that he understands the slur they're giving to Jesus because his reaction in verse 30, now that is remarkable. This is incredible. This is, um, um, the word oftentimes can be used in terms of a supernatural event. This is mind-blowing. This is amazing. It's kind of like saying, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard, or, you know, it's beyond reason. He's saying, I I can't believe you can say this. Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet, he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Now he's going to give him a little little talk on prayer. Uh, He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Right? So he's, he's coming right back at him because they're saying, he's saying, you say he's the worst kind of sinners, and yet I can see. He healed me. So let's review how prayer works for a minute. Right? So now he's teaching them. We know, okay, if it's a sinner, God's not going to answer that prayer. If it's a godly person, God's going to answer this prayer. All right? So I, I got to go godly. Right? I'm going with that. It's almost like he's kind of saying, I'm sick of this religious posturing. You guys are frauds. Because if he were not from God, he couldn't do this. And you're saying he's not. And again, same old thing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now, that is not they threw him out of the room. They've thrown him out of the synagogue. And <clears throat> there are a number of things that point to that. But let me just say, they have decided this guy has got us so mad, he's gone. We can't argue with him. And so they give him the final insult. You're steeped in sin at birth. Not like us. We are better than you. How dare you lecture us? We're smarter than you. We're more educated than you. How dare you talk to us that way? And what does that do? It shows you this is what religion does. It gets people who who rise to the top. They think they're better than everyone. They think they're smarter than everyone. They think they're more talented than everyone. They think they deserve to be there and that the other people who aren't there don't deserve it because they're bad somehow. That is why, man, I'm telling you, this haunts me. That is why I'm always saying things like, I'm no better than you. There is no difference between us. The only thing that has happened, many of you are gifted in many different ways. God, I believe, gave me the gift of teaching. It doesn't make me a better person. It doesn't make me holier. It doesn't make me 
closer to God. I'm not. I'm just like you. I struggle with sin just like you do. I said, years and years and years ago, somebody leaving the church, and I go out to the door, and I greet people as they go, and this, this person said, Bob, I got something I want you to pray for. And I said, oh, I'd be happy to pray. I said, but listen, listen, call the church. We have a prayer list. We'll get you on the prayer. No, no, just you. Oh, like my prayers go through the ceiling better than other people's prayers, right? No, I said, no, listen, no. My prayers are not any more effective than anyone else's prayers. I know. I was just like, what do I say? Because I'm not. I'm not. I I share sometimes my faults. I share sometimes my struggles. Not my worst ones. You'd kick me out if you knew my worst ones, so I'm not going to mention those. But I share those things. Why? Because I'm just like you. I'm just like you. And what has happened? This is what religion does. Religion elevates people, and they think they're better. They think they're wiser, think they're smarter. And it's wrong. It's not true. And so here, we see their true colors. Their pride is manifested. They say, yeah, you're steeped in sin at birth. They have no, no answer for this man, so they play their hand. They, they make it obvious, we're better than you. You are full of sin. Oh, one or two of you looked at me a little funny right then. Oh, you thought I was going to say something else. You are full of sin. Sin. (laughs) I always worry some of you are hoping I'd say something else, so then it'd be the end of, I wouldn't be the pastor anymore. One time, (laughs) one time, I don't know why these things pop in my head. My daughter Reagan was little. They're playing. We lived in, in Courthouse Green, and they're playing out in the parking lot. And all of a sudden, she runs up with one of her little friends, and she's like, Daddy, Daddy. And I'm at the camp of the door. What is it? That man, he got mad at us, and he said the S word. And I said, oh. He did. And I'm thinking, which S word is that? So, oh, really? Well, oh, honey. And she goes, yes, he told me to shut up. I was like, oh, that is bad. Yes. And her little friend goes, oh, that's not the S word. I'll tell you the S word. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's okay. We don't need to right now. You know, not yet. Not yet. Right? This is the worst insult. This is the real S word. You are full of sin. You're full of sin. It's permeated you since birth. You're bad. That's what religion does. It's the worst insult they could think of. And to prove it, they cast him out. And oftentimes, we know sometimes when, when they cast someone out, they would send people around to let everyone know they've been casted out. They've been cast, don't associate. Nope, don't associate with you. Been casted out, been casted out, been casted out. And you'll see this, they do this here. Because when Jesus goes to meet him, there's Pharisees around him. They threw him out, but they follow him. They're making sure everybody got the message because they're threatened. They're threatened. They're following. They're informing people he's not one to be associated with. This is a level of cruelty that's unbelievable. And now he knows. He may try to go somewhere and get work, but he knows that name. The title actually kind of means out of synagogue. That name will follow him. It will travel with him. His hopes of being being married have now been compromised terribly. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. 
Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. What an incredible, incredible moment this is. Jesus heard. This is the kind of thing, word travels quickly. It's an awful thing to happen to this man. And Jesus is in the middle of it. And what does he do? I love this. He seeks him. This is our Savior. Jesus seeks him and finds him. We have a Savior who seeks. He doesn't say, uh, you know, get yourself straight and come talk to me. He seeks. He actively seeks. We have a God who seeks and he saves. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? This is a title. Son of Man is a title. And the man doesn't know Jesus. He's never seen him. So he says, who is he? So I can believe in him. And, and this next is, is it's a little awkward in how it's phrased, but it's because Jesus did this on purpose. It's really cool. Because if you, if you saw it, he says, Jesus said, you have now seen him. He's like, yeah, it's me. You have now seen him. And he says, he says, he's the one speaking with you. Instead of just saying, yes, the one speaking with you. He says, no, no, you have seen him. Just a little reminder of what just happened. I did that. I did that. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He bowed down. He worships. Oftentimes, this means he got on the ground. In those days, often worshiping would involve kissing the foot, kissing a foot or kissing, or kissing the hand. We talked about this before when we talked about worship and, and some of the origins of worship in ancient, in, in ancient lands. It, it, it evolved from that whole idea of surrender when a king who lost a battle would appear before another king. Oftentimes what he would do, oh, I'm 65, this gets harder and harder every year. Often what he would do is he would, he would come with his sword and he'd lay his sword down and he'd get down and he'd open his hands like this and then he would lower his head so the neck was bared. And it was his way of saying, I have nothing. I come with, my sword is yours. I've lost. I am yours to do with what you want. My hands are empty. I'm bowing down and my neck is bared for you. You can cut my head off right now. And, and out of that idea of that type of, developed this idea of worshiping, of getting down. I have nothing. I'm nothing. And, and kissing the feet, opening the hands. And this is what this man did. This is an incredibly powerful image because this man is worshiping Jesus right in front of the Pharisees. I think he's basically saying, you can't do anything more to me. I'm following him. He's worshiping what they think is a mamzer, an unclean one. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were there with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Imagine how insulted they are by that thought. And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus just, I mean, this is such a powerful statement. He's provoking them again. Jesus is not always meek and mild. He hates sin. And he hates 
when people destroy other people's lives and they react to it, their pride cannot stand it. Because they're saying, we're the righteous ones. We have the power. We have the money. Money is a blessing from God. It is a sign of God's approval in our lives. We are the teachers. Everyone looks up to us. You can't say these things. You can't say these things. And that's you see that when they, just that whole idea of they ask, what? The audacity that Jesus is showing. Are you saying we're blind? Are you saying... Are you saying we're like this man, this beggar? He's a beggar. He's worthless. Are you saying we're all like this? All of us? This man who, remember, they called him steeped in sin at birth. You, you, their way of saying you were cursed at birth. We're not like these people. They're beneath us. Pride in religion is deadly. It's, it's deadly. There is no sin to blindness, Jesus is saying. He's basically telling them, if you, could really, if you really could not see what I mean, if you really could not understand what I am saying, you would not be held accountable because you can't understand it. You can't see it. He says, but you can. You do understand it. You know the truth. You will be held accountable. Your pride makes you decide not to believe. Faced with the facts, you have decided not to obey because it would cost too much. And it does cost to follow God. It does, at times, cost. And we have to count the cost as believers. Jesus tells us that. He says, count the cost. They did count the cost, and they decided Jesus was not worth it. I mean, this, this, is, this is a comedy and a tragedy all in one passage. How do they get to this point? How do people get to this point? And here's the important question. How are we at risk of getting to that point as people that other people would call religious? I would, I, you know, if someone calls me religious, I push back on that word hard and quick because I'm, it's not religion. It's something totally different. But I know people think that way. And how can, how can we become that way? This is very important for us. They love the world. That's what happened. They're keenly aware of what's at stake, and it's too much for many of them. You know, John talks about this in 1 John. He talks about, he talks about this whole idea. He says, for, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, does not come. It comes not from the Father, but from the world. He identifies these three things. And when John identifies these three things, we did First John a while back, and it's just an incredible study. I love, I love what he says there, but it's more than just identifying. There are things that John has already seen in Scripture. It starts at the beginning with Adam and Eve. What did it say? They perceived that, that it was the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And let me just, I know I say this a lot sometimes, just get that word lust real quick. The word lust there is epithumia. Thumia is a desire. It's just a desire, any desire, but something that's desirable or a desire. 
Epi, when it's connected, Epi is where we get epic. Epi is huge, gigantic, right? One of the things I love sometimes is when thunderstorms come, I like to go out on the porch. I like to go out under, you know, under the awning and just watch because it's epic. I love it. Then they get close. I'm like, I'm inside. You know, I run inside. But <laughs> I can only take so much epic. And then I get chicken. All right. So, but epithumia is an over desire, a desire that it trumps everything else. It's out of control. It's over everything. Right? And so he, that's what he's saying. That's why, and it's translated here, lust. And oftentimes, well, we read lust and we think that has to do with, with sex, sensual things. But it's not just those. It can be those. But it's not just those things. And so Eve and Adam, what happens? They see it. And they see that it, it's attractive to them. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then, interestingly, Adam and Eve, they blew it, right? They, they didn't... Sin is introduced into the world. And then thousands of years later, here comes Jesus. God's answer to the sin problem has now come on the earth in human form. And what happens? Early in his ministry, he goes out in the desert and he is tempted by Satan. Guess what those temptations are? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Those three get repeated. It's almost like God said, do over. And Jesus does it, and he doesn't fail in the temptation. And so this is, this is what can be our problem, is that these things, because it, with Jesus, the lust of the flesh, it was bread for his hunger. The lust of the eyes was he says, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world with all their splendor. It's a word that says, look, look at their splendor. And then the pride of life daring him to cast himself from the roof of the temple in order to prove that he is the Messiah by this ostentatious display of power that was not the will of God and was not part of his plan for redemption. That's where that temptation was. And so we can struggle with these things. It looks good. I want it. I really want it. It's not wrong to desire something, but when it becomes an epithumia, an over-desire, it begins to take control. It begins to dominate your thinking. It begins to be something that you're fixated on. And so what happens here? We see the Pharisees, and, and it is easy to become like them. Here's, here's the first way we become like them. We look at them and go, they are such jerks. They are so stupid. I'm glad I know better. <laughs> there but for the grace of God go I. That kind of a thing, right? You know, where you just suddenly you put yourself up. That's the first step. That's the first step. But the Pharisees, what did they do? They condemned others for not being like them. They judged others' motives. These are things for us to think about. They accused without knowledge. They valued their life and their way of life above other people's lives. They loved their power and their position more than they loved people. In fact, at times they hated people, and they thought it was right. They were unwilling to consider that they might be wrong. And we have to guard against that. I mean, being aware of the temptation is half of the battle. Being aware of the fact that I can be like that is half the battle to fighting it. 
but also what has Jesus been talking about as we've been going through John? I am the light of the world. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. The light exposes darkness. And I think a big one, and this is a hard one. It sounds simple, but it's a hard one. Ask God to show you where you need to change, where you're struggling. And here's why this is hard. Because for many of us, we do it this way. God, I want you to show me where I'm struggling and where I need to change. And then I'll kind of weigh it out and figure. And then I'll decide, okay, or mm, too much. Right? God's not interested. God's, God's not sitting around bargaining with you. Here's the way it has to be. God, show me where I need to change. And I will do it. When you do that, he will show you. In little ways, maybe in big ways, but he will guide you and walk you towards walking more in the light. But if you're going to withhold judgment, show me, and then I'll kind of figure it out. Then God's like, I'm not, I don't play that game, right? I mean, I know for parents, oftentimes, for me with my kids, when they were little, they would try to negotiate. You know, I would say, look, <laughs> this is so bad. I would tell them, I tell them, if you rub my back, I'll give you a nickel a minute to rub my back, which I thought was pretty generous. <laughs> they didn't. So they started to say, well, what, what, my oldest son said, what about, what about 10 cents? I'm like, dude, I'm not, I'm not negotiating because I got other people that will do it for a nickel. So, and your mom does it for free. So, you know, whatever. So, and they wanted to negotiate. I'm like, nope, this is a non-negotiable. When we try to negotiate with God, he's like, no, this is a non-negotiable. Don't ask me to show you where you need to improve if you really don't want to improve. Don't ask me to show where your sin is if you really are like, I'm not giving that one up. Don't ask me that. And so that's what we need to do. So that, I mean, and here's the thing. I would encourage you, read this week, read back over that passage. Really soak in how the Pharisees were so misguided that, that, that they called good bad, and they called right wrong. I don't want to be that kind of person. I would not wish that on my enemies because they are on the wrong side of it, and it, the, the results can be devastating. We do not want to be wrapped up in religion. We want to be wrapped up in Jesus. That's what's so important. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story, which is just so brilliantly written. John just so faithfully shares this with us. And, it, and it's, it's funny and it's sad. And it's all of our human emotions wrapped up into this story. Lord, we do not want to be the people who miss what you are doing. We want to be the people that find out what you're doing and fall right in line with you. We want to be a part of changing this world. Lord, help us to see we have opportunities to do that. Whether it's through here at the church, working, working with our homeless ministry, or working with the Navajo ministry, or working, working with care, the CareNet ministry, or Thrive, all these people that were involved with, Lord, it would be that. Or maybe it's overseas and sharing and financially and sharing in prayers with people. Maybe it's going. Going and living the greatest adventure a person can live. Help us, Father, to want what you want. In Jesus' name, amen.